Alright, if you need a Bible, please grab one. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's <coughs> measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Continuing on in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thanks, Britt. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to hallow your name. Ask that it's glorified, that your name is magnified over ours and every other thing tonight. We pray that your kingdom comes and that your will will be done here on earth as it is already being done in heaven. We pray for your victory, for your restoration to come and free us from exile and from curse. That darkness and death would give way to life and light. And in the meantime, Father, give us tonight our daily bread. Give us where we're weak, give us strength. Father, where we're down and sad, give us joy. Lord, give to us the things that we need as a group. And I pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but Father, that in every way you would help us to overcome. And where we have failed, that you would forgive us of our sins. And Father, that you would put in our hearts an ability to forgive our brothers and sisters and even our enemies. That your love would flow and cultivate like a garden on this earth. And so, Father, protect us. Protect us from the evil one and from his snares and from death, darkness, and destructive ways of life. May we glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Message number 26. In the series, History, it's a play on. History is the thing we study from the past. But it also means that it's God's story. It's His story. And the Bible definitely deals with history. It begins God's story way back. We don't even know the date of creation. And it moves forward to 3000 B.C., the flood, 2000 B.C., Abraham, 1000 B.C., David, where the calendar changes, Jesus, Pentecost, 30 A.D., moving on to Tree of Life, 2012 A.D., and the soon imminent, that means it can happen at any time, return of Jesus, 2013. Hot, just kidding. I hope. 
You guys are not finding that funny. Like, even the Son of Man doesn't know. How dare you say that? Uh, sometime in the future. By the way, footnote. Um, it doesn't have to be as soon as some people say. Um, you know, it could happen anytime, but it could also be another hundred years. There's no reason it can't be. We just don't know. That's what we mean by his soon return. It just, you don't know. So just be ready. Anyways, footnote closed. Um, so this is the end, is the point. We're, we're done. We, we've reached what here is a picture of heaven. If you notice, there's a lot of imagery from the Garden of Eden, and that's the point. We've been looking at the theme of God's story is restoration. It began with a beautiful creation. Humanity rebelled against what God had in mind in creation. And ever since he's been exiled from the purpose and story of God, he's been set apart uh, in a bad way, in a state of curse. And God's seeking to restore man from that position, to be with him in an Edenic-like state of blessing, not of curse, of life and light, not darkness and death. And that is restoration. And I like that word. A lot of scholars and theologians will use the word redeemed. I like the the meaning of restoration slightly better because it is implying that we've gone from something and we're coming back to what we lost. And that's what the Bible says happens. That Jesus came to be the answer for our lost Eden. And here in Revelation we see that there's a return. All things are restored. But don't misunderstand me, please. When I say restored, I don't just mean merely we left point A, came back around and got back to point A. This is a progressive restoration. It's as if, if you're looking down, it looks like a circle. We just come back around full circle. But if you came and zoomed into the side of it, you're realizing that the circle is actually spiraling upward. Because as we come back in restoration, we're not just coming back to some dinky Garden of Eden. Whatever it was, it was not dinky for sure. It was glorious. But we're coming back to something that is heightened and a climax of Eden. Something that is greater than and so the restoration, yes, comes back full circle, but has also gone up a notch. So that's the end of the stories right here. <laughs> but what's ironic is the very last verse Brittany read in 22.5, it says that they will reign forever and ever. So when we say the end of God's story, it actually means that the end is not the end. It's like the fairy tales that say, well, fairy tales say this, and they lived happily ever after the end. Maybe that should be the P.S. God says, here's the end, but they live happily ever after. So actually, it's just the beginning of volume two. So there is no end to God's story. You are sim- simply, you are wonderfully graduating to a restored State God has in mind. And <coughs> there is an end, however, to God's story if you are not in God's story. If you're living contrary to, out of it, in your own story, your end comes in 20 verse 15, the last verse preceding what we just read. That it Those who are not in God's story are thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, they are in hell. That's 
the end for you. Yes, it's eternal. You're alive, if you can call it that. You're in some state of consciousness, literal place, right, JC? Um, this joke's going to die someday. It has to. <clears throat> but it's the end of life. You've gone nowhere. You're going to serve the king you've wanted to serve for the rest of your life in a place of darkness and death. So there is an end, but not for those in God's story. The end is not the end. So what that means, as we look at life, as we look at history, as we look at existence, what we begin to realize is that we are all involved in a large auction uh, audition, not auction. Audition. We are all auditioning. We're trying out for not necessarily a part in a play, but we're trying out for being in a play. This is an audition, usually an auditions for a play, and you're trying people out for certain parts. This audition is calling humanity to try out for. Many, not parts, but many plays. There are many plays on the table. There are many stories to be involved with. And existence is an audition calling us to try out for the story you choose to live in. Essentially, what it comes down to is the question that the director is looking for. Is he's looking at your life and he's saying, Is Jesus... Your king, or is he not? And that is all it takes to be worthy of the part in the play of God's story. Is all you need to qualify for that role is to follow the script. Is to live in the story and to allow God to be the author and Jesus the king of it. But there are many, surprisingly, many actors who come on the scene and they think, well, I can do better than this. My super duper creativity is going to just enthrall the director. And when you begin to play your part, you begin to audition for your story, the director will say, you're really good at that. And I have a place for you to live that story out in. It's very clear to me that you don't want to live in my play, in my story. So I'll let you live in yours. I think you guys know where this goes. But those who audition to be in God's story excel. And they enter into the play of heaven. And those go into their own story. We call that hell. Not a lot of information on it in the Bible. But it's probably a place where you get to live your own play. You get to be your own actor and do your own thing and be dead and live in darkness and have no life. And as some people say, maybe be tortured too. Whatever is there. It's not good. It's eternal separation from Eden. It's easy to audition for God's story. You just say... In fact, it's really, it's really, the script is simple. The acting is simple. You know what you have to do to act in this play? You merely have to get on the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. He's king. 
And what my king desires, I do, because I'm part of his kingdom. And as we look here at the new heaven and new earth, this is not a place for you to desire if you want nothing to do with the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom that he brings with him. You're going to want something else. So understand that as we look at this, that this is the eternal state called heaven. The Bible doesn't actually call it heaven. The Bible calls it the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem. But we call it heaven. Why? I don't know, but that's what we call it. So that's what this is. It's eternal. It's forever. And it's a good place if you couldn't tell by the reading. So this is what I'm going to do. Take you guys through the three parts of this. First part, verses 1 through 8, is merely describing the new heaven and new earth. This is what it is. This is its function. Verses 9 to the end of chapter 21 takes you to the new Jerusalem, this, this, this city. And it shows it to you, shows you the makeup, what it looks like. And then chapter 21, the first five verses take you inside the New Jerusalem. So you're looking at this new world, then you're focusing on the center of this new world, the New Jerusalem, and then you're going into the New Jerusalem. What you have is a three movement. You have, if you would, this outer court moving to the Jerusalem, this inner court inside of Jerusalem into the Holy of Holies, if you will. Because that is what the new heaven and new earth is. It is the new eternal temple of God himself. Look at verse 3. 21, 3. This is the key verse, I think. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and be, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is heaven uniting with earth. This is the entire globe becoming a temple. God's presence is everywhere. He's with man everywhere. This isn't like our present experience. Now, there's a lot of I don't even know what to call it. Hoopla. It's just weird. About verse 1, the new heaven and new earth. It's like people will ask, well, which are we going to be on? The new earth or the new heaven? Don't misunderstand, okay? New heaven, new earth is a phrase in the Bible. It just means cosmos. Like Genesis 1, heavens and the earth are created. It means universe, cosmos. This is a new universe, a new cosmos. It's not necessarily that you'll be in heaven or you'll be on earth. There's like... Super people are here. The barely gotten Christians are here. What it means is that heaven and earth are uniting. They're one as they used to be in the Garden of Eden. That's what it means. So we see that as Adam was meant to expand the presence of God in the Garden to the ends of the earth, this happens finally. Jesus does it. He brings his presence to the entire globe. So it's a, it's a temple. And the New Jerusalem's the center of this. And the New Jerusalem seems to be like you're getting closer to the presence of God. And inside the New Jerusalem is where the throne of God is. Now, I want to apologize. 
Some of you, um, I don't know, I don't know how many it is. I just heard something, so I just want to apologize that you uh, don't take my uh, JC and my personal view that this new heaven and new earth is this planet resurrected and restored to what it should be. Um, some of you don't believe that, and that's totally fine. And I apologize for making you feel like you had to believe that or something. That's not my intention. Um, to me, it's just one of those things where you begin to see something in the Bible, and it, to you it sticks out to be so true and so what the Bible's saying, that you forget that you might step on people's toes by saying things. So I just want to say I'm sorry about that if any one of you felt like, mm, <laughs> you're free to believe what you want. This is what I do want to say. Uh, by the, let me back up. You're free to believe what you want because when it says new heaven, new earth, the word new, the Greek doesn't demand it being read either way. It can be read either brand new or renewed. What does it mean? Is it a brand new earth in heaven? Meaning the one right here, Jesus or God just kind of blows up and wipes away and then just totally starts from scratch and makes a new one? He could do that. Yeah, like the Death Star in Star Wars is how J.C. always describes it. Just, whoa, where'd it go? <laughs> or does he take the one here? He invades, heaven crashes into it, and he resurrects it. He brings it to life because it's in a state of death. That would be the renewed version. It doesn't matter. Um, because, you know, Pastor Mike sits on one, he sits against me. I sit on the renewed. He sits on the brand new. Some of you sit on the brand new. JC sits on the renewed. It doesn't matter. What matters to me is that we agree on the fact that heaven is not a celestial place in the clouds, but that it is an earthly place. As it says here, it talks about a new heaven, new earth. And that's biblical. You would have a hard time trying to argue that one. So I don't care if you think it's this planet or a brand new planet. Let us just agree that it is on a planet. Whichever one it is. <laughs> We're not going to be bodiless spirits floating on clouds. Fluffy floating, I think is what I called it a while ago. That's just scary. <laughs> it's not going to be quite like that. Now, the, one of the biggest objections I hear to heaven being on an earth is, but doesn't the Bible say that we will not remember the former things anymore? If it's earthly, it sure sounds like we're going to remember an awful lot of earth. An awful lot. <laughs> yeah, the Bible does say you'll remember the former things no more. It's Isaiah 65, 16 and 17. It's where the new heaven, new earth is first used. It does say that. But if you read the context of those two verses, the former things are not earthly things. The former things, it says, are the troubles people endured. In other words, as we read here, the curse is so removed from the earth that you will never have an experience on the new heaven and new earth that is even slightly reminiscent of the pains, sorrows, and troubles we had on this planet. That's what will not be recalled or remembered anymore. It'll be as if you woke up from a... I think C.S. Lewis says this somewhere. It might be in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't even remember where. He says it will be as if we wake up from a bad dream. The experience will never be there again. Just some former thing. don't really recall what that was about. I just remember it was a bad dream. It was weird. You guys ever had dreams like that? You don't even remember what it was about. You just know, I'm glad I'm out of that. 
I love that illustration of it. So that's the new heaven, the new earth. You notice there's no more sea. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, I think that's good there. He'll wipe away every tear. Death is no more, neither mourning, crying, pain. Former things have passed away. That's verse 4. That's very good. He's making all things new in verse 5. Woo! Okay. But verse 8... For the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion is hell. They're permanently <laughs> removed and smoked. No, I'm just kidding. Not, I shouldn't have said that. It's not funny. Smokers are fine. I would just say that because I'm smoking. I'm, ca- I'm not smoking. I mean, I'm coughing. <laughs> Excuse me. Stop talking. I'm coughing like I have a smoker cough. I thought it would be funny throughout it, but it really isn't funny because I know Christians that smoke. There's nothing wrong with smoking. It's just not smart. But anyways. Okay. <laughs> They're removed. And that's what makes the curse lifted. Why did the curse come? It came from rebels who said, not God's kingship, our kingship, i.e. Adam. And that's when the earth went downhill. The earth is renewed when these rebels are removed and the kingship of Jesus Christ is restored upon the earth. So you can't have a new heaven and new earth unless the sinners or the rebels are removed from it. And that's the purpose and function of hell. So, that's what verse 8 does. Now, the New Jerusalem. Okay, so you see in verse 22 that there's no temple in the city. Reason? Jesus is the temple. And by extension, the entire city is a temple. And because God's dwelling with man all over the place, the whole world's a temple. What I think John wants us to see this as is he's using language of today or his time when the Jews knew the temple to explain the future earth. It's like a temple. There's the earth part. There's the new Jerusalem part. There's the inside the throne room part. That's like the temple. Outer courts, inner courts, holy of holies. The new Jerusalem is described as the holy of holies itself. You're not to read this part of Revelation as a newspaper. That's often a mistake we make. We, we read it and we say, wow, these 12 stones are the foundation. That's a really colorful rainbow foundation. Um, or it's 14, wait, was it? 1,400 miles high, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep. You know how big that is? I forgot how wide America is. Is it 3,000 miles? Okay, so it's half of America. Wide, high, and up into the atmosphere. Take America and stand it up off the planet. Is that going to look... <clears throat> that should look funny. Don't read it like a newspaper is my point. What John is doing, he wants you to take him literally, but you have to understand what he means by literal. He's using Old Testament images and verses to portray what's coming in the future. So we have to look at what he's saying and think, what in the Old Testament does this mean? And apply that to the future. So, what does it mean by 12 colorful stones being the foundations? 12 colorful stones were what the high priest wore on his breastplate. What does it mean that there's going to be gold? The whole city's gold. Guess what the whole temple was? Gold, gold. (laughs) What does it mean when there's going to be a river of life and a tree of life in the city? Oh, that was rhetorical. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, you see, that. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
Those are Garden of Eden images. Garden of Eden, we talked about, was a temple. It was, the, it was where heaven and earth met. It was where Jesus was living with man. Well, God then, whatever. Um, what we're looking at is this renewal of the presence of God with humankind. And furthermore, um, I think the most extravagant one is, what do you do with these odd shape, like this odd, this cube? 1,400 miles cubed. Like, what do you do with this big block of a city? <laughs> I mean, it could be that the earth is bigger and it's not as quite as ridiculous. It could be. But I'm going to take what I think John's doing. He's using Old Testament imagery to tell you what's happening in the future. What else was a perfect cube, dimension-wise? The very holy of holies in the temple itself was a perfect cube. In 1 Kings 6.20, it describes Solomon's temple. And it was a cube. It wasn't the same measurements, but it was a cube. And that's what John's saying is that this city itself is the dwelling of God. And all of creation is restored to this dwelling so that anybody can come in. The gates of the city will never be closed. The kings of the earth will bring their treasures into it. All of creation has free access. Such free access that this presence permeates the entire new earth. So much so that, footnote here, some scholars say that the new Jerusalem is actually the new earth itself. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's an interesting thought that the new Jerusalem is the new earth. That would say the whole entire earth is a holy of holies. The point, though, is that God and man are restored, and that's why life is good, light and life and... Going well. So, um, why did John change the number, though, um, to 1,400 miles? Um, maybe, this is a suggestion, uh, one scholar pointed out that the Roman Empire squared was about that. 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. Maybe John's point is, to the Christians of this time, don't fear the kingdom of Caesar. The kingdom of God is going to triumph. And that might be his point. That might be why he made the cube really big. Is he might have had that subtle message in there. So, okay. That's that. Um, now let's finish off with this. I was reading this, um, and I noticed... As everybody does, what is up with no C? Why is there no more C in verse 2? Or 1? That's not to say that surfers will be really bored in heaven. (laughs) I remember surmising about that in high school. If there's no sea, what's it going to be like? All land? Remember again, John may be using Old Testament imagery to tell the message about the future. What did the sea represent in the Old Testament? (coughs) The sea always represented destruction. Think of Genesis 1 verse 2. In the very beginning was death and darkness, and all there was was water. Think of the flood. Lots and lots of death because of water. Think of Israel coming up to the Red Sea with Egypt behind them. Both of them represented their death. They couldn't go anywhere. And the miracle is that God took the sea and removed it. There was no more sea for them. They went right on through. The sea has always been a symbol of evil. Um, Daniel 7, we didn't cover this. We mentioned it, though. In Daniel 7, he has this vision of four beasts who wreak havoc on the earth. And all four beasts come out of the sea. 
And in Revelation itself, which makes us feel very comfortable about this interpretation, is that the beast himself, sometimes known as the Antichrist, comes out of the sea. The sea is a source of death, darkness, and destruction. And John's point isn't surfers will be bored, sailors will have nothing to do. His point is that there will never be another beast, another serpent, to tyrannize the earth again. There isn't going to be another fall. There isn't going to be another rebellion against the kingship of God himself. All will be stabilized. And further, well, yeah, all will be stabilized. It's going to be land. It's going to be inheritable. Jesus said, well, okay. She said the meek will inherit the earth, but it's <clears throat> no. The beast in Revelation to the readers of the time, we today think that it's talking, uh, at least in some circles, think it's talking about an Antichrist coming. When John's readers read it, they would have naturally assumed that this Antichrist was Caesar himself. It was the emperor in power then, Domitian, or even the guy just behind him, Nero, who were killing millions of Christians. At least by the time they're all done, it was millions. And the Christians would have thought, oh my gosh, the beast is going to kill the church. The church will not exist. We're hopeless. And John says, no, the sea will be no more. When God's kingdom comes, when heaven is here, when we're restored, hope. Caesar's kingdom will not last next to God's. Oh, it might look like every other story you see on the planet Earth is a good story. And I want to be part of that one. Because that one's prosperous. That one's succeeding. Rome. Or whatever it is today. But John's saying, it's not even going to be around anymore soon. God's kingdom is ultimately going to win and to succeed So the beast, who cares about him? Yeah, he might kill a lot of people. He might be really powerful. We might be really weak under his hands. But not forever. There will be no more sea. There will be no more death, darkness, destruction. Because the river that gave life to Eden is giving life to the new earth, coming from the throne of the Lamb himself in 22.1. The tree of life is there with its branches and leaves for the healing of all peoples in the new heaven and new earth. There's life and light that succeed. There's not even going to be need for the moon or sun because there's no darkness. There's no night, it says. Life and light conquer death and darkness. Then there's one more thought I had. It just occurred to me uh, after dinner that 22.2, where it talks about the tree of life, months ago, like 10 months ago, in January, I launched a message just before we started history, it's like 26 sermons ago, plus, counting downstairs, so plus. Um, I launched the name Tree of Life. From this passage. And so that that is the goal. That is why we're tree of life. Is because we are a community being restored to Eden. Under the kingship of Jesus. With branches and leaves for the healing of all people. (coughs) And it's been quite a while since we've revisited that idea. And I've been observing over the past couple months 
some death, some darkness, some destruction, and some disease within Tree of Life itself. Tree of Life is meant to be a community that says we are the restored, we're one of those few remnants on this planet. It's worldwide, but it's small. This remnant that God is restoring to his presence. And we're to be a preview of this, of what's to come. That we're to be offering healing to the nations, to all peoples in all walks of life. That we're to be having the water of the river of life flowing forth from us. And there is to be no sea. The sea is not only the source of darkness and death and destruction and the beasts. But the sea is also a division between nations. America and England. England used to always refer to us as the nation across the pond. (laughs) We're divided by water. And so are many of the other continents. And Tree of Life is a group that does not have any sea in it. There is to be no division between this group or these types or these newbies. Of course, I'm speaking ideally because that's exactly what's happening. There are Atlantic Oceans here, and there are Pacific Oceans, and there are Indian Oceans, and all I mean is there's different bodies. And it grieves me that Tree of Life has become trees of fabrications of life. Trees of death, maybe, would be better. There used to be so much fruit. And I have to stop. And, you know, tonight is just, this is all out of, that's why I didn't have my Kindle up here. This is all out of my, not out of my, what am I trying to say? It's apart from my notes. Because after dinner, I was just slammed with the idea that over the last couple months, I've been witnessing this slow decay. And, you know, I'm sorry. Some of you, you maybe not fit into this, but some of you, I'm just going to be, throw myself in this and say all of us deserve to hear this exhortation. A tree of life needs to be the unified garden again that seeks to cultivate its members. Some time ago, we did a message on um, communion. And where we said that communion is, in God's story, is that it is the, the feast of a community celebrating the fact that it is a community of restoration. That we are partaking of God's heavenly table together. And that as we take it together, we're announcing that we are unified in a community. And we hold each other in accountability. And we have an identity together. And months have gone, and I watch us all take communion every single week. Quite frankly, we take it flippantly. We don't even know what it means anymore to be a community of restoration. We're a community of death and isolation There's definitely a sea here. And there are so many people. I mean, JC and I, well, JC was kind of towards the tail end of summer when he came. But Brittany and I and JC, for some of the part, we were so encouraged with what was happening during the history series during the summer. I mean, we saw 
I don't even, I don't keep notes or count, so I don't know, but at least 20 new people. New people flood in here all the time. That's really unique about this group. I don't, I mean, from all over, different backgrounds. I've never been a part of a group that has so many new people come in. And every summer, it seems like we get slammed. Like, literally, if we kept every single face who's ever stepped up in this room on a Sunday night, we and all of them were here at once, we would literally have 100 to almost 200 people in here. Definitely 100. Masses of new people here all the time. But what really hurt me was when I looked around, and this isn't just tonight, it's, it's, it's accumulation of months since summer. I realized that as soon as school started, I don't see any new people. In fact, all those new people, I haven't seen them since. They came and checked us out for long enough for us all to know their names. And some of you might be thinking, like, think back to some of these people. Think back to the faces and the names. Some of you might be like, I can't, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And that's my point. That's the problem. Is that we have people who come in and are never talked to. We don't know their stories, their backgrounds. We're so comfortable with our communities within the community. And we're exclusive. And we're exclusive because we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect this thing we have going on. And the presence of a new face or somebody that doesn't quite swing the way we do threatens that community. But that's not what a tree does. It grows outward. The branches extend and offer shade to all people, all places, all nations, healing. And we've done the opposite. We had our branches out. The birds flooded to it and found their nesting places. And then we said, that's enough, and closed up. And I'm not just talking about new people. I'm talking about people who have been with us for a good year, if not more. I mean, tonight's a good example. Think of the regulars who haven't, that aren't here. Think of the regulars that haven't been here for the last couple months. I'm talking about staples. And we probably are suddenly now, where have they been? A community recognizes the faces of everybody. I know I'm not one to like talk and to come down on everyone and that's not what I'm trying to do. I just want to raise awareness. And I know the excuses, but I'm comfortable with my peeps. And I'm not very outgoing. I'm not very social. It's so awkward when you talk to them. Uh-huh. Don't use that as an excuse. I am the king of awkward. Jesse Woodall, some of you remember him. He and I, the students, battered us every day with how awkward we were. We were the king and queen. He was the queen. I was the king. (laughs) Of awkward situations. Okay, so you can't use that excuse. I'm shy. You have no idea who I am then. Brittany does. You guys think I'm outgoing because I come up here and talk all the time. I'm not. I'm always nervous to heck. I don't talk apart from the pulpit very often. So let's not use that excuse. If I can try to make myself look like a fool and meet new people, you can too. If I can branch out 
to the non-groupies, people I'm not groupie with, you can too. So I don't know. I was just feeling very heavy when I was thinking about this passage. I almost felt like I can't talk about heaven because we're not reflecting heaven in the slightest. We're not a preview of what's to come. People come here, and you know, some of them are in my class at school. I have to look at a bunch of them and think, well, Kenny's here, but I think they used to be at Tree of Life, and they're not anymore. And honestly, I don't blame them for not coming. I don't know. Maybe it's just that the sermons have, I don't know how to say that word, stunk. I was going to use a stronger word, because maybe they have. Maybe I'm just burned out, and I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore, and I'm just blabbing out of two sides of my mouth, and everyone can't wait for JC to start, and bring life. Maybe that's why everyone leaves. But I have a feeling that it has to do with us corporately. I have a feeling that people say things like, I haven't been so long, I'm afraid they're going to judge me if I come back. Actually, that's a quote. I might have a feeling about, I just never felt welcome. I was there so long, knew everybody's name, but I just felt lonely in the midst of all those people. Or it might have even been, I was here for the whole summer, and no one introduced themselves to me. I don't know if that's true, but I definitely know that that might be the case about some people. From what I observed, it might have been behind my back and I missed it. But that's definitely true too. And I just want to say, Tree of Life, that I love you. And that sometimes we need a shaking. Oh, I'll still listen. Um, Monday. And this goes beyond here. This goes on Monday nights too. We are probably even worse there. There were two girls the other Monday who never come. And the worst part is that you guys knew who they were. And nobody talked to them. You want to talk about awkward? You try coming to a group like that. You think that we're reflecting life and light? Here in restoration? That cannot be, my people. So let's just wake up. I know you're really comfortable with your peeps, but okay, branch out a little bit. There was a time when everybody, literally everybody ate together. Literally everybody talked together after the message. And literally everybody went to hot shots together. Now I understand Okay, hot shots just may not be a thing you can go to. That's not what I'm saying. But there was a time when even everybody was at hot shots, and what I began to see was slowly, there became, we used to sit all together, then there became, there's this table and this table. And then some people just go hang out in the parking lot. And then some people go to Jensen's. And oh yeah, they'll stop in and say, hi, we're cool, we got our little candy or whatever. But like the community slowly corroded. And now it's a thing where it's like, I think last time we were at hot shots, it was literally four of us. JC, Brittany, me, and three others or something? I don't know. My, just, I'm not saying you have to go to hot shots, but it's an example of what I'm trying to say as a whole of what's happening. And I, I hope that illustration serves its point. Dinner. I remember I used to see everybody, or at least got to talk to everybody at dinner, and then a couple others that came at worship. Now I feel like I don't get to say hi to anybody until we're up here. And I just don't know what's happened to the community. But... All I'm saying is, tree of life feels more like a tree of death. Um, But heaven has no more sea. And all the nations eat from the leaves of the the fruit of the tree of life. And the whole thing is the temple of God. And I don't see any groups. I don't see any hierarchy. 
I just see the state and it's assumed that the people of God are one. And if we're to be a preview of what's to come, if we're to bring restoration to the nations, it's got to happen here. We've got to be a preview of what's to come. Okay. So that's what happens when I start talking apart from my notes. It goes long. Let's pray, guys. Actually, while your eyes are closed, I just had a thought. Um, I mentioned communion. We take it. It's supposed to be an act of community. I feel like we're doing it with hypocrisy. We're taking it, but we're not practicing it. We're taking of the body of Christ. We're not being the body of Christ. So I'll encourage you guys, if this is even spiritual, I have no idea. Maybe let's challenge each other. Let us be on a communion fast until we feel like we can be people of restoration. That we won't take communion again until we take it seriously and practice what it means. Just an idea. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for taking your body lightly and for being a group of death, division, darkness, disunity. And God, we know that you love us and that this has been hurting you and you're calling us back to what you want us to be. So Lord, I pray that you come and you cultivate, nurture, water, fertilize, whatever you need to do to make tree of life sprout healthy fruit again. That the birds of the air will return to its branches. And that Father, that you would be glorified in all that's done here, Sunday, Monday, and Wednesday nights. So, Father, thank you for loving us, and may we all partake together of the leaves that heal us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.